You're listening to the HSDNA Podcast from the Garden State. Your hosts, Justin Starbird, and guests from HS Design walk you through each step of the medical product development process. Listen in as they discuss topics like contextual research, human factor testing, and conceptualization, giving you the best practices and real examples of success in the field. And now, here's your host, Justin Starbird. Welcome back to this special episode of the HSDNA podcast. My name is Justin Starbird, and with me, as always, is Tor Alden, Global Lead for Design of HS Design, a Steripack company. Tor, you and I are both uh, fresh off of giving some talks at the MDNM West Medical Device Trade Show there in Anaheim. Welcome back. Hey, thanks, Justin. Yeah, it was always good seeing you and enjoyed your talk as well. I uh, appreciate being here. Thanks. Yeah. I, I uh, it was a lot of fun. It was actually pretty neat to go back to back on those things. So that was kind of cool too. But you gave a really uh, pertinent topic uh, discussion about the top five traps that startups need to watch out for when they're engaging a product design firm. And you know, of course, that's relevant to your uh, to your space, but also it's relevant, you know, across industries when you're thinking about creating new, new products, you know, what was your you know, thought behind uh, creating that topic? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so startups have always been a passion of mine. And, you know, the idea of uh, emerging startups is even more interesting in that uh, the combination of people that come together to get a disruptive technology and try to get through all the different um, stages to get to a, a final product, it, you know, it's it's almost like a labyrinth of uh, of a maze, if you will, to to get through it. So, my my goal was to really sort of highlight some of the traps that startups get involved in when they start working with a product development firm, and you know that that typically can can range from anything from uh, you know planning to to ultimately. Um, financial elements. So it was really, you know, kind of geared towards that. I mean, the other, the other key part, part of it is, is that, you know, HSD, we, we've been around for over 42 years. Now that you mentioned we're with Stereopack company, uh, we have a global influence, uh, you know, so we, we work with the fortune 100s as well as the innovative uh, startups. And they're, they're much different when you start looking at how do you approach a product uh, planning and and how do you get through the different financial gates? Uh, typically, a, a Fortune 100 or a 500 company will have dedicated internal gates that will you know mitigate what how do they go through it and and the funding required and and so on. Where startups typically you know they range from fairly large to to just bootstrap, but they're all kind of on on a um, you know a finite amount of uh, financial fuel, if you will. Yeah. Of course. And, you know, you have been in a in a really interesting position over the last, you know, several years, if not decades, um, leading HS design uh, through the ups and downs of the industry and what's transpired throughout the, the last several years. But for those that, you know, have started to follow, you know, you personally and HSD and now even Steripack, can you give a little bit of a, you know, overview of, you know, who HSD is today and some of the specific areas of expertise, and then we'll jump into some of those uh, areas that you just mentioned. Sure. Yeah. So HSD and and now Steripack, 
uh, as well as, as for total company. Uh, sorry, as as far as HSD is concerned, we are uh, um, 1345 certified uh, medical design firm. We focus in consumer health, drug delivery, life science, and medical and surgical products. So we have over 42 years of that that uh, experience in medical life science pharma. We've won numerous awards in in um, from IDA to to MDM, and so we, and we've also have a, a sort of a very focused methodology as far as our comp uh, our process and our competencies. Uh, we range from uh, upfront usability research uh, that might go into contextual inquiry for early understanding of how a product might fit into uh, a specific user requirement. Uh, we do formative summative usability from a human factor standpoint, industrial design, UI, UX, engineering ranges from uh, electrical, mechanical, and software, as well as we have a, a fairly um, uh, expansive prototyping capability. And now with Stereopack, we can go all the way from concept to manufacturing under one roof. That's uh, pretty exciting to be able to tout all of those things in one place. Um, it's it's interesting. I mean, it, we we somewhat silo it in that that we have a unique capability that we understand manufacturing and everything that goes into manufacturing, but it, it doesn't mean that you're required to use our manufacturing. Likewise, it doesn't require that you use our design to go and to use Stereopack manufacturing. So we we are the first ones to identify if, if the product meets our uh, uh, you know sweet spot as far as how we can help uh, create value for the client. And we will, you know, work with them on identifying partners if we do not have them ourselves. Sure. So, yeah. <clears throat> I, uh, I mean, the the opportunity to work with you guys is is pretty cool. And you know, you mentioned earlier that you work with Fortune 100s and then you know startups and and innovators alike. And in your talk, you you brought up a couple of statistics. Well, I think that you know, you mentioned everybody kind of knows that, you know, three out of four medical startups, you know, may not have success. And, you know, you kind of hit the the nail on the head as you went through it before you jumped into some of the traps. You know, why is that uh, statistic so relevant to to folks that are listening? I mean, it's interesting. I mean, from a, from a product development standpoint, it's probably out of our startups, or if, if you just look at it from, from uh, statistically, it's probably one out of 20 that actually make it. Uh, so three out of four fail if you talk about every every uh, startup that might be out there. And that, that's from a Harvard Business School uh, poll. But uh, from, from a you know realistic standpoint, there's so many hurdles that or traps that startups fall into that it's very, very challenging to, to create an idea that's highly disruptive and and bring it to, to market without having to have some pain or or ability to pivot or sort of re rescope what you're trying to do. I have to imagine that there are a lot of folks out there that are starting, you know, just getting going that are in the midst of their startups that that don't realize that uh, companies like HSD and, and now Starpack Company uh, have the ability to, to help them see, you know, the journey in its entirety before they get started. And that presents a, a real 
you know, opportunity for, for you to work with these companies and kind of give them a leg up, but thinking about, you know, what the typical startup does face, what are the typical medical startup traps uh, that people occur when they're engaging with a design firm or, you know, what are some of the things that, that you see from your perspective? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And, and I mean, again, startups range, you know, in a whole sorts of different flavors. Um, you know, the very beginning startups uh, may just need a pitch deck to try to gain some additional seed funding. Others may just come out of a series A or B and, and have a, you know, two to $10 million tranche that they need to uh, get through very quickly. And, you know, as to get to know the the startup, the startup also needs to get to know the partners they're working with. And too often I find that a startup will come to, to a design firm and just really sort of get a, get a generic project schedule or get a generic quote and then share it, get the funding and come back to the design firm and not really understand that it's, it's a long-term, almost like a marriage with the, with the, uh, with the developing partners and that, you know, they, they shouldn't just rely on a friend's recommendation or the first one that accepted to, to work with them. They really need to have a, a really good advisory network that can work with them to understand what the actual disciplines are required. Who, what, what do you offer as, as the key stakeholder in the startup? And then what are the other uh, areas that you need to fill when, when you, you know, comes to product development in, in, uh, uh, you know, for a medical product, it, it starts very early with the the strategy and the planning and understanding. Have you secured your IP? Has your you know have you understood the regulatory uh, process that needs to happen? What about the billing codes? Where where are you really headed in in that development plan? And and to define the key thing, Justin, really I think is for to develop a really meaningful uh, product requirement specification. And and uh, to develop that into a formal RFQ, if you will, or a preliminary product requirements to get to an RFQ that can really get to the apples and apples of a product development firm quotes as opposed to apples and oranges. So many times we see you know a very vague requirement, and you could you know you could look at it from a very optimistic standpoint or a pessimistic and get to a uh, you know a delta of you know, over $2 million difference in, in development costs. So it's really important to understand. And, and then understanding the development partners that you're going through for product, for, for production. You know, what, what are you looking, do you need to have a clinical trial? Do you need to have um, proof of concepts? Do you need to get to, uh, you know, some sort of feasibility, feasibility state at a certain uh, time frame? All those things are, are, you know, contingent in selecting the right design firm. Are those all areas that you want to see on the initial RFQ? Well, it's interesting. Again, you know, if you've got a a a, a doctor or a nurse coming to you with an, an early stage idea, they're never going to have that sort of development. But a company that's you know raised several million dollars in a seed round will have that all packaged up very cleanly. So, yeah. you know, understanding where you are again and and how much help you need as a, in an advisory uh, capacity is, is critical. I think, you know, so again, just getting back to kind of the first trap is really just that 
planning and understanding understanding the language that, that the differences between uh, potentially a clinician and a, and a product development. You know what what does uh, what is an alpha product or a beta prototype? What does that mean to you? And and how does that how does that communicate to the audience that you're pitching to? Uh, you know, understanding the right regulatory needs that you're you're going to do you know that you're going to be a class two or are you going uh for de novo or are you uh um uh pmi pma what what are the different type of uh challenges that you're going to have several people come to us don't you know they're i guess you know backing up not getting too technical on you is you know there's iec 60601 61010 that these are all different um uh, requirements ones for regulatory ones for uh, equipment, you know, how you determine what path you're going into may determine whether or not you're a 510k or you're you're going into uh, uh, some other area uh, like a de novo. Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, and I think one of the more fascinating pieces that you brought up and that people may not realize is that picking the right partner is really like a, like a marriage. You're going to have things that go really well at the beginning. It's going to feel great. Um, you're going to hit some bumps in the road or, you know, maybe uh, some challenges along the way that you weren't expecting and how, you know, are you able to overcome those and, and be able to, you know, listen to not just the advice, but uh, you know, then heed it and, and follow through on, on what's going to happen. Um, I like your, your point about not relying on, you know, friends and families, you know, for re their recommendations, although they might have your best interests in mind, they may not know the business. And so being able to develop those relationships in a, in a way where everybody feels, you know, uh, confident about uh, where, where the, the project is going, I think is a, is a really great start. Yeah, I mean that, that that's a perfect segue into kind of like the what I would consider the second trap, and that's you know not building or scaling the right team, right? So, for for example, if you if you if you're developing your team, um, most of the most of the startups probably in the medical anyway come from either a, a medical or a technical side of it, right? So they're learning the other parts as they go. Not not many have been a CEO before. Sure, there, there, there are a couple of people that have gone through several different startups and, and have a better bandwidth that, from that. Uh, but, you know, have they have experience in communicating with a larger team? Do they know how to delegate responsibilities or is it, you know, and, and the biggest challenge most most startups have is are you willing to quit your day job or should you even quit your day job? Right. Somebody, just because you're the founder of the inventor doesn't mean you're a good CEO and not to say that some founders aren't excellent CEOs. It's just that even as you're developing a startup, the most successful companies actually transition sometimes from one startup to another, depending on where they are in the, in the development, because some are really good at raising capital. Some are really good at understanding the, the, you know, the, the ins and outs of the marketing. And, and you need to identify that and make sure that you're, you're bringing that, that team across uh, together. And, and, one of the biggest challenges and gets back to that marriage analogy is communication. So there's so many times when you write that program and, and you, you know, sign the, the SOW and you're ready to start, that's the honeymoon and everybody, you know, you're flush full of budget, everybody starting off on, on seemingly the same path and everybody's great. 
how do you resolve the conflict management of knowing that something went wrong or, you, you know, something didn't work the way you were thinking the prototype didn't do what we were expecting. And we had to create a new prototype and it's going to cost additional funding. Those are, you know, those are highly, uh, uh, conflicting problems sometimes. And, and how do you manage that? And how does a CEO create that dynamic to, to gain that trust in the, in the, partner relationships, you know, you, ideally they came to us because they believe we have an expertise, but do they really trust us and are they willing to, to listen to us or they, do they want to just kind of continue down a path that they were sort of set on earlier? Most, most are very open-minded, but they're occasionally, if you don't, again, have that ideal core team, which, you know, getting a, a, CD, a CEO that is running the day-to-day understanding the funding and really motivating and, and creating that sort of cause of that, the mission of, of the, of the team is important. Um, yeah. Having an advisory board that, you know, you can actually have somebody that, that um, is a devil's advocate, if you will, that can really um, talk to, to the initial founders and say, look, you know, it's, it's really time to pivot or, or we have an issue here, or, you know, again, a technical lead, somebody that can actually, follow what we're doing on the, on the technical side and understand that we're, we're, we're doing it the right way or, or potentially we need to, to look at another method or, or uh, prototyping strategy, you know, and then there's marketing, understanding the, the billing codes and regulatory, you can't overlook regulatory. So all those, those are the sort of the five key elements, I would say, of a perfect startup. If you can get, you know, the key people that are CEO, advisory board, technical lead, regulatory and, and marketing. Yeah. Who do you, so, you know, I have a couple of follow-ups for you on, on this area, but specifically the advisory board, because, you know, it is so difficult to take feedback and both uh, positive sometimes, but mostly, you know, uh, I don't want to say negative, but an adjustment in thinking that may not be what your initial path was how do you, you know, build trust there as a, as an advisor and, you know, have those difficult conversations? And, and I guess even before that, prepare them that, you know, you may have difficult information to share with them and that they need to, to really think about what's being said. Um, well, I mean, so any startup that's looking for funding is probably going to have advisory board members that have put in some capital. So you have to make sure that, you know, those are the people that are actually looking at their investment. And so they're going to have a, a fairly poignant, you know, conversation if, it, if it's not moving on course. But the other advisory boards are, are probably looking at it more from, you know, the market relationship of, of your, your highly disruptive market. Do you have uh, opportunities to engage with some of these uh, lead players and, and understand what's the best, you know, uh, what's the best uh, commercial outcome for that product as far as knowing your audience, understanding how to how to meet the investor expectations, all that is really uh, part of that advisory team. Got it. And then, you know, thinking about the journey and, and your, uh, again, analogy about that, the idea of marriage and communication, how do you go about helping them communicate better? Because uh, so often, at least in my experience, you have, uh, you know, 
engineers or the the folks with the great idea that's you know the impetus for getting started but they've been used to doing it on their own and not taking a lot of input or uh actually sharing how they got from point a to, to point f uh what what do you do there to to help um uh, i don't want to say improve communication skills but uh, you know make it part of the journey and make it, you know, something that is, you know, important to them? I mean, that's, that could pivot off into a few different areas, Justin. I mean, one, you know, one is just managing the actual communication of, of what we would call the earned value of a product development uh, program. So, you know, a program manager that we have dedicated to the program will have weekly communication to the team to, to, talk about where the goals are, where, you know, where the funding's at, where, where we're, we're, you know, trajectorying, uh, where the trajectory is going. Uh, but the other is, is the other person that's critical is, is sort of the client advocate, which is working with both the, uh, the client's, you know, passion of understanding what they're trying to do with the team. That's all the, the internal product development team. That's, that's on a very, you know, um, sort of mission critical um, straight line to, you know, with rocket fuel almost, right? You're aiming in a, <laughs> right. a tra trajectory that, that can't be changed. And so we really need to make sure that we have sort of those two communication lines open. I, I mean, to think of it another way is is the person that came up with that, that, um, that, uh, that idea, it took a long time and they, out of a lot of... Uh, very strong perceived vision of their own to, to, to come up with that idea. And if they look at it long enough, uh, you know, they're going to get slightly a myopic vision where they just see the product is going to solve this problem. And, and it's for this audience. And what we need to do is work with them to really sort of understand that, that there are ways to kind of look at that, to avoid the tunnel vision and to, to, help them sort of pivot if they need to, but make sure that they don't pivot too much. And I guess that's, sure. it's a, it's a tricky uh, dilemma because if you have, if you, if you really sort of have a, a, a CEO that's a client advocate and wants to make sure everything's right for everybody, any, any comment that they make, you know, when we start doing, you know, the, the uh, uh, maybe I should back up. We, we utilize the lean startup methodology when we start developing products and, uh, when you have an idea and you you start to measure that by doing what we call formative usability studies, you're going to get a lot of feedback. And the key thing is to learn from that and pivot from that and then build another prototype. But if you listen to every single comment and get too weak as far as your core belief of what you're trying to solve, you may be trying to solve everybody's need and become weak in everything. So if that makes sense, it's it's really that balance of of understanding what's the important uh take home of those of those prototypes and what can you build on and when to pivot and when to preserve or persevere and just kind of move on yeah i mean it, and like you mentioned you know being able to understand you know the key elements at each level i think is really important and then that communication you know can then you know, look at uh, what's needed monetarily to 
to move forward too, right? Because like you mentioned, if if uh, you're trying to be something for everybody, then you're nothing for anyone, right? And and then uh, I think you'd mentioned in the actual talk uh, a couple of weeks ago about um, you know being feature rich and and how you know that can also be just a, a drain on on your uh, monetary resources. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a catch there. I mean, there, there, there's so many ways that we could go from that comment. That you know, there's one like if you're you know the uh, minimal viable product is a highly used term in startups, right? But it's it's from my perspective, it's really geared for software, and a lot of people have taken it to to go to regular prototyping. But if you if you take that too seriously and you say I want to create this one product and I overlook the fact that I'm going to need new code. I may not have enough memory in that board to support that next round of prototype. Or if I try to get it too small, just for the reason of making it small, I may not have enough battery life to create uh, the other help with the other feature set. And all of a sudden you have to recreate a whole brand new prototype where as if you overbuild something, and even though the, the software might be minimal viable, the product itself might be able to be uh, scalable down the road. So it's, it's it's those type of that's a trap that we didn't really talk about, but that's the prototyping trap, you know, of sure. of, of getting through that. Um, you know, one thing I before I forget, just to to bring up the uh, there are a couple of things that that um, are really helpful for uh, f- uh, for for newly new startups, um, and that's that's working with um, or getting involved in ICOR, which is basically developed by the National Science Foundation uh, to help startups. Um, if you ever get, you know, if you ever got a grant or if you ever wanted to, to pursue the, the grants through through the government, which is a great way to not have a diluted uh, equity stream, they, they actually promote you to, to, to get through these programs of, of I-Corps, which they'll teach you the sort of lean startup methodology. They'll teach you a few things that are, are key for, for understanding how to meet the customer value proposition. Um, mm-hmm. which, you know, again, isn't first and foremost in, in a startup's journey when they start trying to develop a technical, you know, most of these products are highly technical or complex problems. So you're, you're trying to solve how to make it work. You're not necessarily looking at it and saying, how is the user going, how's this going to be delivered to the customer the best way? How is this going to solve the customer's problem? How are you going to ease their pain? How are you going to provide their pleasure? So all of that really needs to kind of be a secondary uh, review of the market to understand how that product will finally uh, materialize. Sure. Well, and, you know, as you move forward in the materialization of an actual product, you know, what, what did you, you know, you talked a little bit about underestimating monetary resources as mm-hmm. a, a trap that folks fall into, you know, and what you don't know actually can hurt you. You know, can you talk a little bit about uh, you know some of those monetary resources and 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 what happens there? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, from 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 a from a monetary standpoint, again, every startup has their goal of of what they're looking for for their initial seed round. Um, if you're starting at friends and family, you might be you know getting a half a million dollars and, and think you have plenty of of funding. Uh, others that are going through series A and B, like I mentioned, might be looking for 10 million. Uh, some are, are, are looking for a lot, a lot more depending on the, on the scale of the project. But no matter what, everybody's typically unrealistic in their estimates that 
they're optimistic. They put together a, a project, you know, a, a schedule, or they they said, I need to have, you know, hundred thousand for this, a hundred thousand for that, and and you kind of develop all these buckets. Um, but they're expecting everything to go right, and it's far. It's probably one in twenty that actually go right the whole way. That's the that's the beauty and the fun of the development process. You don't know <laughs> what you don't know, and that's right. why we all love being in the consultant business because we wake up in the morning you know, excited about getting into this, but the, you know, and, but the funding is really like rocket fuel. Like I mentioned before, where you want to get to the moon on one shot. If you moon, if you miss that, that moonshot, you're, you're out of fuel. And and now what you have to go back to your, your, um, your initial funders, and, and they're not going to be happy to be diluted again. You're going to have to figure out ways to, to get through that. And even if you get through all the prototyping and you get all the way through to manufacturing, you know, there's a thing called the valley of death and a, and a, f- a fair amount of different ways you can look at that. But the way I look at the man- managing the valley of death is really how do you get from the prototype, what we call, you know, alpha prototype to a beta prototype. It's basically, uh, you know, basically going through the FDA, you get approval. Now you've got to go all the way to manufacturing how do you select that manufacturing vendor? How do you make sure they're scalable? Are they global? Are they too global? Where do you get that that development partner that is the right fit for your startup? That's a whole other conversation, you know, from from um, understanding the timelines and and you know basically the you know if we if we look at it another way, uh, you know, typically a medical product development is is around two years, right, give or take. Yeah. Um, we've we've seen them as you know, as short as a year and a half, we've seen them as long as five to seven years. Some of our actually more successful startups we've seen have actually taken longer, and but they've gotten the different seed funding to, or they've gotten through the rounds of funding to the point where they've gotten to, um, uh, you know, a really, really nice Series B grants and, and or a Series B funding. Um, sure. But, uh, you know, so... So it takes two years. You, you've got a lot of that 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 sort of a you know a long time. It, it's you know from from a for for a startup to to be engaged in a product development firm, you know that that is that is a a long marriage, right? You know, <laughs> things that are going to happen along that way. Um, but then after development, you've got the clinical trials, you've got FDA submissions, you've got marketing and sales. And sort of that's that valley of death that's really between the design and manufacturing that you need to have that cost built in or your, your, you need to have a budget built into that. And what I, what I recommend a lot of times with, with clients, you know, depending if they're bigger or small is that, and, and I don't know if it's the right analogy, I call it the Jacob ladder, but basically developing a prototype where, or, or developing a, a, a deliverable that, once you complete that, let's say it's it's the first round of prototype, you can't go back. So even if you run out of funding or you need to raise funding, you have a certain amount of uh, achievable product to offer to get the next round of funding. Yep. And then you know never you never want to stop a development because you ran out of funding halfway through a phase, and because then you're basically back to the square one again. And and so we work very hard with our clients to make sure that. Uh, when we manage our project schedules and we manage the budgets that we don't fall into that, you know, sort of um, area where, where, where we can't stop a program elegantly and be able to restart it again. 
Is there, you know, going back to a couple of uh, comments you made a little bit ago, you know, regarding uh, prototyping and listening to feedback and the right, you know, people on the team, how important, you know, is it at that point managing the valley of death, as you call it, you know, is it uh, coming down to the leadership on that team that you put together? Yeah, I mean, well, so so clearly, um, again, it depends on what market you're in, right? If if you're in a, a diagnostic field, you need to have uh, your, uh, you know, your advisory team needs to have some clinical education to understand what what's involved and and where where the right appropriate manufacturers could be that that can help. Um, so it, it's really dependent on on the the product, whether it be a, a you know, pharmaceutical diagnostics or, or consumer medical, it really, that sort of landscape changes. Sure. Okay. And, you know, as you go through and you're getting in, uh, to the, not just the proof of concept, but you're, you know, beyond uh, some of the prototype stages, it, what does that do to the psyche of the team? Um, you know, especially if you have to go back and ask for more funding or you have to uh, look at your product and, and realize that it's maybe not what you were thinking. What does that do uh, to the team at that point? Well, so you're sort of, that would be the worst case, right? If, if the communication wasn't there during the process or during the development process to, to make the, that understood uniformly along the, the whole team. So, so, you know, we, we develop, you know, the prototyping process, for example, the best way to manage uh, investors expectations is, is to, to do a lot of them. And, and um, you know, as we develop the proof of concepts, there may be small uh, prototypes that just solve one problem over another. Um, and again, what I can actually tell you a lot of times because the, the the deadlines are tight and because the money's tight, the, the natural tendency for a startup is to say, I want to get everything into that first prototype. I want to, I want to, you know, put, just, just make it, you know, as, uh, as feature rich as possible. And the challenge with that is when you try to uh, basically uh, work out the prototype and figuring out where, where some of the uh, challenges are for why it's not working correctly, it gets much harder to to evaluate what's the root cause of that problem if you've got so many other areas competing for what the problem might be. If that makes sense. Yeah. So we actually develop you know very small proof of concepts for specifically if it's dealing with you know um, you know uh, diagnostics where we're dealing with assays and and incubation and and fluid transfers and and other types of things. We want to minimize the amount of things that we put onto that so we can identify how they're they're working and we can basically qualify them. Once we qualify them, we combine them into what we call an alpha prototype, which would basically be sort of a the most realistic looking like prototype, but not production ready. And then eventually after maybe several alpha prototypes, we'll get to a beta prototype. Now the challenge is communicating to the startups that this is the biggest challenge I think we've ever had. You develop a prototype and let's say that prototype costs $10,000. We use it for a day and we say, okay, we're done with it. It's, it's obsolete. We now have to build another prototype. Right. Yep. 
the, the start of the, you know, investors are going to be like, wait, no, that's $10,000. I need to make it work more. I need to make it go further. And so that you know, <laughs> understanding that, that sort of pathway of getting to these prototypes, that there is going to be a lot of, you know, uh, the, the prototype process is, is clearly that, that, that we're, we're, we're refining and add, add, adding to, to it every round. So it's, it's going to be, you, you're going to go through a lot of, prototypes let's put it that way <laughs> well i and i can appreciate that and having seen the teamwork and some of the the outputs from it um i will vouch for that and seeing the the number of uh, products that that do come through that you know end up on you know the design floor so to speak um so that they are you know i don't say sacrificed for the next round but uh, they get you to that you know, minimum viable product that you mentioned before. And then, you know, and then that helps um, yeah, on the emotional element, as I was kind of getting to uh, one of my favorite slides from your presentation was, you know, it's your baby and it just can't be ugly. Um, and, and wanting to make sure that uh, the investors understand that although they want a return on investment, uh, they may not, you may not be ready for that just yet. And we're still working towards, uh, you know, something that's worth putting out. Yeah. I mean, that gets to, I mean, well, I want to clarify one thing before I move forward about the prototype costs. We've gotten very good about, you know, can, talking to our clients about how to develop a prototype where, it can be more reusable, right? So even if it's a consumer product where it might be in production, a snap fit, one use uh, manufacturing, the, the prototype that we might develop may have screws, right? So we can take it apart, rewire it, get it to work. We don't want to just throw away pro prototypes for prototype's sake. So I just want to make that clear. Right. But right, <laughs> right. Um, but getting back to you, yeah, it's it's uh, your baby. It can't be ugly. I mean, that's really the 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 best way to to avoid that, and is to to understand what um, user needs are, and basically um, sort of that that value proposition I mentioned earlier. Um, we we use uh, you know a process called contextual inquiry, which basically is is a form of ethnography that uh, is is basically to be a fly on the wall, if you will and watch how your product is used within the environment it's supposed to be. So if it's in a surgical suite and you're developing a surgical tool, you have a prototype, you want to simulate that use. You want to basically see how the, the, the product might be able to be used in that environment without being in the way, without being, you know, causing pain to the nurses or, or pain to the physicians. And, and or surgeons and and try to understand the landscape. Once you understand that landscape, you can basically um, utilize the, the 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 lean startup methodology, if you will, to to pivot or not even pivot, but just to modify that product slightly to make sure that it, it fits within the environment. So, yep. you know, it's key to it's to to your point is it's it's key to not just think that it's because it's my baby, it's perfect. It's not going to be perfect for every environment and knowing that, you know, specifically in the medical space, nurses don't want change. They hate change for your product to be successful to a nurse. It needs to either ease their pain, make them do less for more or provide them some sort of pleasure and, and alleviate those pain points. Um, if you don't do that, you're not going to be successful. 
And for those listening, you know, that was really a great overview of trap four, uh, the emotional element of, of going through and, you know, determining how to engage with a product design firm and, and what to look for. And I think, uh, you know, you're spot on with a lot of those things. It, it actually goes back to some of the first things you talked about, and that's, you know, relevant or relative to communication rather, and uh, making sure that, you know, there is a constant flow of information so that, you know, people are not, um, you know, surprised by what's coming and, and you're able to, you know, continue to, to move forward through the process and, and be one of those, tw- of the 20 that are trying or, you know, uh, and, and have success, um, you know, from there, you mentioned uh, really clearly that uh, trap five was talking about your value proposition and, and staying uh, strong in those beliefs. What did you mean by that? So the value proposition is, is, you know, basically that, that does your product, you know, ease their pain or, or provide pleasure, right? It's, it's basically about understanding your customer and, and, and creating, creating a, a product that that's within that customer segment, you're actually providing a need. Um, the FDA, you know, has the FDA waterfall, which basically will prove out most of your clinical and technical requirements as far as verification, validation, and, and you know, they, they identify user needs. But if you identify the user needs up front within the FDA waterfall, where you can actually do your technology assessment, look at the system architecture, do the contextual inquiry, do your usability assessments down to the conceptual development you're going to basically combine the startup methodology with traditional contextual inquiry. You're going to gain so much and, and understand um, how, how that fits in with the customer market that um, it's really what we call, you know, value plus one. Um, You're just going to, you're, you're gaining additional value for the same amount of effort that you would, if you went through just the regular FDA uh, waterfall exercise. Mm -hmm. You had kind of started to talk a little bit about that before uh, in terms of the lean startup methodology. You know, you want to um, talk a little bit more about that and where that fits in? Well, so so that's, you know, if, if you're a startup and and you pretty much probably have picked up Eric Reese's book, The Startup Methodology, it's it's kind of one of the, the you know, basic ideas of, of build, measure, learn, right? Um, so the the key thing for that is is really just uh to to basically when you're when you're starting you're going to have an idea you're going to need to understand what features are are needed you need to test those and this all built into sort of the the uh FDA's uh, regular usability regulations where you know formatives are are highly um in, uh, required for for when you're submitting for your um for your for your uh, FDA th- that uh, you have to have your your um, formative at least show some bias for formative usability testing, which is a part of the lean startup, if you will. Yep, great. Well, you know there's so much uh, to glean from you know what we've discussed today, not just the overview of traps and stuff, but you've given a ton of examples of, you know, things to look for at every level 
you know, what are some highlights that you want people, you know, folks that are listening and, and that are going to read about this to, to take from not just your talk today, but, you know, really the opportunity for them to be successful. What should they be looking for? Yeah, thanks, Justin. I, I think, you know, the key thing is, is know where you know what you're good at and know what you're not necessarily an expert in. Um, spend time to, to, to plan and, and understand the process that's necessary to get from uh, an idea to a commercialized product. Um, you know, if again, building and scaling the right team is, is critical. I, I can't underlie that enough. And, and the right team will get you more funding. And, and the, 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 the VCs are, are, are extremely aware of how the team's built. And so that team makeup will, will, will get you a better financial end in the end run. Um, you know, you mentioned it earlier, but never underestimate your capital expenditures. You'll always need more. Um, and, you know, when you start creating that capital expenditure, are you paying yourself a salary? Are you paying other salaries? That money is going to go very quickly. And, you know, to, to make sure that you can um, go longer, look at the grants, look at other ways to, to develop um, financial um, pathways without, you know, reducing your equity structure. Um, he is, is just, again, to step out of the box and reduce your emotional connection. You know, it is your baby. It may be ugly. It may not be. But you need to basically step out of the box and see what other people are saying. Take what they're saying for, for what it is. But on the same point, stay true to your, to your goal. You, you got here to a certain way because you were, you know, myopic, because you were bullish. You got to that certain point. So be open to some ideas about what the uh, initial end users may need or what technical limitations are around, but stay true to your value prop. And, and even if you pivot, try not to pivot too much. Don't take everything in and try to make it everything for everybody. It should be, you know, fairly vertically integrated uh, for your end users. And, and, you know, from that perspective, you can always create, that's the other thing, Justin, you, you know, startups typically are a one product company and everybody says companies cannot be a one product company. So that's when you want to look at it and say that you may, your technology may spin into different platforms into different markets. So try not to make that one product fit everything. Yeah. I, I think uh, you're right on with that. And, and uh, especially as it relates to both money and uh, your emotional connection to things. And then, you know, making sure that you're staying true to where you started. Uh, I think if, if anything, those are, are three really great takeaways. And, and really, I appreciate you, you taking the time to share the, the five traps that med tech startups, you know, might fall in there. Uh, but really, you added a couple more in there too, and and I think all of that is really valuable, and and not just for startups. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're going to be, uh, you know, self-reflective, and we're looking at this economy, and every day you and I are, you know, seeing the headlines in our industry where you know folks are are getting laid off, or you know, there's mergers and acquisitions, which you know lead to some, you know, uh, career casualties there, you know at the end of the day, you, you need to continue to make sure that you don't fall into some of these same traps, even if you're a fortune 100. Yeah, no, it's true. And I mean, if you know, there, there are plenty, there are plenty of traps. It's not just five for sure. 
um, you know, and, and again, a, a successful development team that's been doing this for for a while will help you. And I think that's the key thing is that out of all our competitors, out of every all the product development firms I know, nobody's really in it to anything but success of their clients. And so it's really if, if something goes bad, it's 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 not necessarily one finger to point at it. It's that that communication of the team that needs to be looked at. It needs to be, um, you know, again, it, it's this is what we wake up and and look for is to is to help develop products from from concept to production. And uh, you know, it's it's what keeps us excited. Yeah, absolutely, man. Well, Tor, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for uh, covering so much of this information. I think it's been great. I appreciate your time, Justin. We've been listening to the latest episode of the HSDNA podcast powered by HS Design. On behalf of Tor Alden, my name is Justin Starbird. This has been the latest episode of the HSDNA podcast. On behalf of our guests today and host Justin Starbird, thank you for listening. As always, to listen to other episodes of HSDNA, go to hs-design.com and scroll over the HSDNA tab on our menu. Until next time, thanks for listening.